So I am uh, transitioning to a different tablet, and it's only got a little bit of battery left, so I may slow down. No, I don't think so. We'll be good. I'm really anxious, uh, excited uh, to preach this message to you today, uh, because it, uh, as I was studying it, it just really spoke to my heart, and I trust it will speak to yours as well. I'd like to encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, to open it to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 43 there in a moment, and there's always a Bible app event, so if you have the uh, version Bible app and you click on the menu and uh, look for an event near you, you should find an app uh, that goes along with this message uh, that will make it uh, easy to follow along with extra scripture in it. I know that you've had these moments, a moment when all of a sudden you feel like everything's just like it should be and then suddenly something's out of place. It can be a pretty small thing, but you're like, wait a minute, that's not right. You're driving down the road in your car and you know, you're just going along down this grade and everything seems real good and all of a sudden you look out your window and there goes your rear tire passing you in the passing lane. Ah, something's not right here, something's out of place, that would be a problem, you know? Or maybe it would be like a mom when my when my older brother was uh, in grade school, it was a small school, he's old enough to have been in a one-room schoolhouse because he's 15 years older than I am, but uh, it was a four-room schoolhouse, as I remember uh, the story, uh, this was before I was born, and uh, <laughs> he came home from school, and my mom took one look at him, she would tell the story, I took one look at him, and I knew something happened, and so she said, what happened today at school? Uh, well, he and his buddy had been playing with matches, and they caught the field next to the school on fire. And uh, she knew, you know, it's just like everything's normal, and in walks my son who walks in from school every day, and something is out of place. That just isn't, that isn't what it should be, you know? Moms know that kind of stuff. Laurel knew that. When, when we were, uh, <laughs> had our first child, Tim, when he was an infant, I can remember Laurel saying to me, he smells different. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Have you changed him? You know, I don't, what, what? what? So she called uh, the uh, pediatrician and said, he smells different. And the pediatrician said, yeah, he's probably got an infection. Bring him in. Sure enough, he had an infection. Moms just see that this isn't what it was yesterday. And something's different here. Something is out of place. Something's wrong. So when I was reading the passage and studying to put this sermon together, and I'm reading Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 43 through 48, having been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, when I got to this point, I went, whoa, something's wrong. This isn't right. This is different. And that's a weird feeling for me to have about the Bible, you know. <laughs> when I think something's wrong, that it's not, not the Bible. And it's not that something was wrong in the Bible. It's not that Jesus is wrong ever, you understand. But it's different right in these verses than it's been right along as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. I wonder if you can spot it. If you've been following along, if you've been listening for the past several weeks as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, see if you notice it as I read, starting in verse 43 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, let me say that phrase again. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, did you notice it? 
Probably not, maybe. There seems to be a little bit of an anomaly there. It's just a little different than it has been all this time. Let me kind of lay it out for you. Jesus is using this speaking technique as he does the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said, and then he says, but I tell you. And he's done it a number of times. In fact, let's look at it. If you look back at 521, for example, he's talking about murder. And in 521, he says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to just judgment. Okay, so did you notice? Jesus is just quoting directly from the scripture from the law of God in the Old Testament, where it says, for example, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Jesus is just using what it says in the Bible, and he's saying, you heard what it says here in the Old Testament in the law of God. He does it a second time in verse 27 of Matthew 5, where he's speaking about adultery. And he quotes directly from the scripture, from the law of God in the Old Testament, when he says, you shall not, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. There it is, the Ten Commandments again. That's Exodus 20, verse 14. He uses it again in chapter 5, verse 31 in Matthew, when he speaks about divorce. And he goes directly to the scripture, to the law of God in the Old Testament, when he talks about he writes her a certificate of divorce. He's always going back to the scripture and referring to that. In chapter 5, verse 33, when he speaks of not swearing falsely, he is going back to the law of God in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, where it says, Do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. And then five verses later, in chapter 5, verse 38, he speaks of revenge. He does the, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, and once more, Jesus is going back to the law of God given in the Old Testament when he's quoting from Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, saying an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. Every time, every time that Jesus goes back, he's quoting from the law of God in the Old Testament. But this time, it's different. This time, something's out of sync. There's an anomaly here. Because when he speaks in Matthew 5, verse 43, look at what he says. He says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That is not what the Scripture says. Something's been added. Here's what the scripture, the law of God in the Old Testament says. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then that last sentence, I am the Lord, is like, end of story. That's it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's nothing else to be said here. But someone added something. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Someone's added something onto that passage from the law of God. Now, just to be clear, Jesus didn't add it, (laughs) just in case you're thinking, maybe Jesus had it. Nope. He's doing what he's done right along. He is quoting what other people have said, what people are familiar with. He didn't add it, but someone did. Someone did to the point that Jesus could just say it, and everyone's like, yeah, I hear that all the time. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I hear that a lot. It had become commonplace. Now, let's think about that. Adding to the word of God. That takes some guts, doesn't it? I would guess that the very fact that someone added the phrase, hate your enemies, was because he felt like loving your enemies, that would be just too hard. I mean, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but don't, don't, don't get carried away and think that 
God wants you to love your enemies. That's just way too hard. Something you've probably been noticing here in this Sermon on the Mount is that kingdom people are not afraid of hard work. Kingdom people are not afraid to take the hard path. One of my very favorite speeches of all time, and because I'm a man who uses speeches, so to speak, I kind of look at those a lot. One of my favorites is by John F. Kennedy when he was speaking to the United States of America from a microphone at Rice University in Texas and telling them, (laughs) setting forth the dream to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. I was only one year old, by the way, when he gave this speech, but I remember it like it was yesterday. (laughs) I don't remember it at all but I've watched it a lot of times. I just want to read to you some of these words when he speaks about putting a man on the moon. And I wish that I could do a New England accent so I could be like him. I can do a Southern accent, but I can't do the New England one. So you'll have to add that in your imagination. Listen to what he said. But why, some say, the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may as well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? That's the equivalent of, why does Pitt play Penn State? You understand? I'm a Pitt boy, so I can say that. He goes on and he says, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. And he has to stop because they're applauding. And he says it a third time. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. I got goosebumps. I love that speech. Because that idea, that idea that something... (laughs) of doing something seemingly impossible, that desire beats deeply within the heart of humankind. It is why the football coach in my high school always insisted on playing the toughest opponent for the homecoming game. So when I was a senior, we played East Brady. Anyone know in 1979 who the quarterback was for East Brady? Jim Kelly. Hall of Famer. They killed us. (laughs) But it was worth more because of the challenge. It is why a quilted quilt that someone has hand quilted instead of sent off to a machine to be quilted can get so much more money at a sale because that hard work makes the quilt more desirable and worth more. It is why Dave and Justin, when they go hunt elk out west, don't hire a guide. They do it themselves. They pack it in themselves. And they go themselves because it is worth more when it is difficult, when it is a challenge, when it is a hard thing to do. And that is the way it is in life. And that is the way it is in the kingdom. Kingdom people accept the work of love. There's no merit in doing that which is easy. And Jesus says that very thing in verse 46. If you look at verse 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And then later he says, if you just greet your own people, what is that? 
Don't even pagans do that? And Jesus is saying it takes very little depth of character, maybe none at all, to love people who love you. There's no real merit in that. But the way of the kingdom, that includes loving people who won't, not just don't, but probably won't love you back. And loving those who don't love you, there is great merit in that. There is great merit in doing that which is hard. And Jesus is talking about loving people who are hard to love. I mean, look at verse 44 in your text. He says, I tell you, love your enemies. And then the next sentence, the next phrase, and pray for those who persecute you. Now, when Starbucks has a Christmas cup that doesn't have a Bible verse on it, that doesn't mean they're persecuting anybody. The media wants to get someone to say that so they can make Christians look like idiots, and that's exactly what we look like when they do that, right? But maybe you've seen persecution in the workplace. You know, I remember when I worked for the gas company on the gas lines across these rolling hills of Pennsylvania, there was one guy who was a Christian and let people know he was a Christian, and everybody harassed him and teased him mercilessly slipping pornography into his car so his wife would find it when he got home. All kinds of persecution happened in his life. So yeah, persecution does happen on a level, at least, in my experience. But in these guys' experience, it was huge. I mean, the persecution they suffered. Well, we'll talk about it more in a moment. I do want to say, though, that Jesus is telling you and me to love those who persecute us. And that's got to be tough for a generation of people who struggle to like someone who's voting for the other candidate in a national election. i got to love that person. Loving those who are evil, and by the way, that's the word Jesus uses in verse 45, is going to be hard for people who pass judgment on others around them based on which news source they happen to take and use. Huh. Loving those who are your enemies might be something that is a bit of a struggle. But it is the way of the kingdom. I mean, just listen to Jesus' words once more. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I wonder if you have any real enemies. Maybe for you and me, (coughs) the enemies that we have are people who make it hard to love them. You know that family that posts crazy stuff on social media? Maybe them. Maybe those people that can just be really obnoxious all the time and seem to intentionally want to get your goat. Maybe them. Maybe that woman that is always telling you how much smarter her child is than everybody else in third grade. Maybe it's her. Maybe it's that person that's always crashing your boundaries. Always crashing your boundaries. And you've tried to define some limits, but they're always doing it. Maybe it's that person that broke more than your heart, they broke your trust. Maybe it's people who mooch. Maybe it's people who gossip about you or about your loved ones. For me, those are the people that it's hard to love. But I'm supposed to love them. I mean, Jesus' followers in the first century were persecuted to the point of torture, beatings, imprisonment, and even eventually death. And Jesus says, love the people who are doing that to you. I guess I better love these people that I just mentioned here. It kind of makes sense. But how? I mean, how do kingdom people love their enemies? 
This is a portion of a sermon that I give the most attention to, generally. Because I do want you to be able to go out of the building feeling like, okay, I think I can do that. I don't want to just give you a lot of theology or a lot of Bible content and have you going, yeah, I don't know what to do with that. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to do that? This is a hard one to give you the how do I love my enemies thing. And it might take a little bit of thinking on your part to put on your thinking cap and give consideration to it. I would tell you that it probably begins with understanding Jesus' kind of love. And his kind of love is agape love. In the Bible, or in in ancient Greek thought at least, first century Greek thought, there are three different kinds, three different words used for love. The first one is eros. That's the kind of love between a man and a woman, right? The second kind is phileo, which is brotherly love. The city of Philadelphia, phila, phileo, is the city of brotherly love. The third kind of love is the highest love. And it's an unconditional love. It's called agape love. Jesus is talking about love that loves regardless of the other person's behavior. He's talking about love that loves regardless of that person's lifestyle. I don't approve of your lifestyle, so I won't love you. Nope, that's not agape. He's talking about love that loves regardless of the person's worldview. You see things so much different to me. I don't think I can stand to be around you. Nope. Agape love loves regardless of those things because agape love is unearned love. Agape love is given by grace, and agape love is, a, is something that comes from a choice in your heart, a choice to love. And while it can be difficult, I want to suggest to you that agape love is actually the only kind of love I can give to an enemy. I certainly can't give them eros, <laughs> right? And I can't give them brotherly love because they're not behaving as though we're brothers, But I can love them by my choice without any regard for their lovability. That's what unconditional love means. Agape love is a matter of choice. And agape love, that's the love that God has for you and me. It's agape love. He doesn't have phileo love for you. That's too low. He doesn't have any other kind of love for you of of any volume except for agape love. Love that is given by his choice, regardless of your condition. And so he didn't look at you and me and say, whoa, you are some good people. I outdid myself when I, when I created those guys. Yeah, I think I'll save you. I think I'll send Jesus to save you because I think I love you because of how you are. He chose to love us without regard for how we are. In fact, the Bible says he chose to love us in spite of how we are. And you see that over and over again in Scripture. For example, in Romans Romans chapter 10. By the way, the Thursday night guys are starting a new book of the Bible. It's Romans uh, that we're going through. I'm pretty excited to do that. If you want to join us, it's a come-when-you-can kind of group. There's like 40-some guys signed up for it. We have anywhere between 10 and 20 who actually show up. And no one condemns you if you don't come. You get a reminder to come and let us know that you're coming and then we meet together. Romans we're going to be doing. Romans chapter 5 in in verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear that? While you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. 
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And then this, listen. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, God loved us despite our condition. It certainly wasn't because of how congenial we were or how friendly we are or how agreeable we were or how cooperative we were or because we saw things his way or because we, we politically aligned ourselves with him. What does that even mean? He loved us when we were, well, look at the screen. We were his enemies and he loved us. And in the kingdom, we love our enemies the same way regardless of their behavior, regardless of their opinions, regardless of their posts, their politics, we love them despite themselves. And you can do this, because hear this. If you're still kind of like pushing back against this and saying, I don't know if I can do it, hear this. Loving your enemy doesn't mean approving of what he is doing or thinking or saying. You got that? God doesn't approve of everything I do, think and save, but he loves me regardless. That's agape love. Loving your enemies means treating them with decency, even though they're behaving as enemies. It means treating them with mercy, with grace, with compassion. It means treating them the way Jesus treated them. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because of the people he hung out with. And you might say, I think Jesus just liked hanging out with drunks. Have you ever hung out with drunks when you're not drunk? That is not a smooth ride at all, right? It wasn't because Jesus found it pleasurable and enjoyable to be around his enemies. It was because he chose to love them because he knew his love could transform them. I feel like Jesus actually even gives us a practical way to make this happen. Because in the midst of this, in verse 44, is where he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Praying for them. Have you ever done that for an enemy? I'll bet you have. I'll bet you said, God, I pray that you make him lose his job so I don't have to put up with him again. (laughs) That's not what Jesus has in mind. That's not what he means. You pray for your enemies. You pray that God would bless them. That he would show them himself. That he would pour out his love upon them and his mercy upon them. I know that's true because I hear these words from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's praying for your enemies. That's what Jesus did. That's what he's telling you and I to do. (coughs) How many have done that? I'd like to see your hands. Have you done that? Like, I'm going to do that. Yeah, some of us have. I'll bet, (laughs) I'll bet some of you have had this experience. When you prayed for your enemies, God began a transformation in you. Yep, there they're nodding, just like in the first service, people nodded. Yeah. When you pray for your enemies, suddenly God works in your heart, maybe slowly, but surely works in your heart to change you, and he even has wrought change in those who you might think of as your enemy. When you pray for him, changes everything when you pray. Jesus says the way to love your enemies is to act like your father, God, your father in heaven. Now, speaking as the father of two adult children, I can tell you that there are times when my children act like their father, like me, and it is not pretty. 
Not going to talk about that. No details there, but I'm going to tell you like, oh, wow, I taught them to do that. (laughs) That's bad, right? But there are other times when I hear my children or see my children acting like their father, like me, when I'm in one of my better moments, you know? And I'm like, look at that. And I think to myself, I just so much wanted them to get that. And I can remember talking about it, and they're like, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, and there they are. They're doing it now. That's an amazing moment. That's a wonderful moment for a dad. It's, it's glorious. <laughs> Every time you act like your father in heaven, it's glorious. It's a good thing. And Jesus says, that's what you're doing. Behaving like your father in heaven. Well, look at it. It's in verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your heavenly father. He causes sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. When you treat people well, even better than they deserve, even when they deserve the opposite of being treated well, you're acting like your Father in heaven. And you're acting like you're part of the kingdom, because you are. Now listen, I know this is a difficult thing. I know it is. The reason I was anxious to write a sermon and preach a sermon on love your enemies is because I choose to write the sermon that's hard and do the other thing in this decade. You know, it's a, it's a hard sermon to preach, but it's right. I know it's a hard thing to do. I know it's a difficult thing, but where's the merit in doing that which is easy? Who wants to do what is easy? But I would say to you that in some cases, the only way you're going to be able to love your enemy is if you go to the cross. In some cases, the only way you're going to manage this and do this is to do some business before the cross of Jesus. You're going to need to visit Calvary. You're going to need to bow there in your heart. And you're going to have to say something like this, Jesus, I know the way of the kingdom is to love my enemies, but I really can't do this in my own strength. I need you to do it. And listen, that journey to the cross, he will honor that journey. And, and that prayer of confession, I can't do this. Jesus will honor that prayer. And, and when you bow at the foot of the cross and ask him for help, he always honors that posture. You see, bowing at the foot of the cross means surrender. That's very counter to our culture, especially today. Fists are raised everywhere. Knees are bowed next to nowhere. Bowing at the foot of the cross means surrender. Finding healing in Christ, you surrender your right to be angry. And finding mercy at the cross of Christ, you surrender your right to hold a grudge. And finding love at the cross of Christ, you surrender your right toward hatred, to hate. And by the way, it's not the other way around. I mean, some people might preach this, and it would be such false teaching. But somebody might say, you know, if you surrender your right to be angry, then you'll find healing in Christ. No. No. Someone might say, if you'll just let go of that grudge, then you'll find mercy. No. That's backwards. Some might say, if you'll just surrender your hate, then you'll know the love of God. No. You find the love of God, 
And then you can surrender your hate. You find the mercy in the cross, and then you're able to let go of your grudge. And you find the healing in Christ, and then you can surrender your anger joyfully. It is because of what he does in his agape love to give you what you need that enables you to love the way your father loves in the kingdom. And it's a beautiful thing. It might be one of the coolest things you'll hear this week. That when you surrender to him, he gives you a supernatural power to love your enemies. Doesn't mean you approve of what they do. It doesn't mean you agree with their position. It means you treat them like human beings. It means you show them mercy and grace. It means you show them compassion. It means you show them love. It means you behave like your Father in heaven behaves. And it's a great way to behave. A lot of people struggle in 2020 in the midst of a pandemic and, wow, political season. That's just the ugliest thing that happens. I feel like we should elect a president once every hundred years. You know? Then we wouldn't have to put up with this, right? You know I'm being facetious. But a lot of people in this season struggle to find joy. I can get that. And a lot of people in this season want to clench their fists. That is not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And then, you're like your Father in heaven. And that's a choice. I want to pray that we can do that. Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, we are so thankful, so thankful for your words that explain to us the way of the kingdom. Thank you, Jesus, for taking time to speak the words on that hillside along the Sea of Galilee that resonate with us even today. We want to be kingdom people. We want to love our enemies. We don't want to just do lip service to that. We want to really love our enemies. Help us to understand what love is. Help us to see how we have received agape love because that's the only thing, that's the only thing that would reach us. And help us to be willing to give that to others. We surrender. We surrender because we have received your grace and mercy. In Christ's name, amen.